0: Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at WarrantyWise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967, and we're brought to you by west coast motorcycles they sell harley davidson's lots of them and very lovely they are too find them on facebook at west coast motorcycles alec reed entwistle was one of the favorite guests here on speed shop and as i have a terrible habit of saying that i must get people back and they're never doing it i decided to get alex back he is a dealer in specialist cars Ferrari Aston, Martin, Rolls-Royce, Bentley, that sort of thing. He's a gifted raconteur. Um, you would expect him to be. He's in the second-hand car business. I'm really glad he agreed to come back because he's got some great stories and he tells them well. My guest this week, Alec Reed Whistle. Alec, great to have you back. You're brave. <laughs> <laughs> Has well, lockdown deprived you of any guests? <laughs> no, I realised that we were approaching a milestone. We've been doing the new version of Speedshot for a year. This is the 52nd show where we've just had one guest. At the end of almost every single show, I thank my guest and insist that they must return. Uh, and they never come back, because <laughs> I'm always, I'm terrible, I'd be like, I make terrible boyfriend material, because I'm, I'm full of sort of, oh yeah, it's been great, we must have you back, and I, I never call, I never call. But I thought, I must get back one of my best guests, and when I put together a shortlist, it was quite a long shortlist, but yours was one of the name right at the top, because you were very entertaining, because you are... You're an entertaining guy, and you're controversial.
1: <laughs> so I would better not make any comments about wanting to be your boyfriend. Or, or, or... <laughs> I knew I knew you'd start
0: like that. I tell you what. Why don't you tell everyone about the car that you've come in here today? Because I was, I saw it outside and thought, Alex here, because you know we're on a busy street in Manchester. But I just knew as the as it was coming up the street
1: that it was going to be. You. Do you know, it sounds awful. I came in the cheapest car I have, which is a 1990, no, it's not, 93 Bentley Turbo. Um, so it's the later generation, it's the updated gearbox, so it's four-speed rather than the old three-speed box they'd used since 1970. It's worth nothing, but it's still a Bentley. I think it's, it's. I think it's fabulous. It still screams, get out of the way, poor person. Royal Blue. Yep. What are we we calling that interior? Cream? Uh, Magnolia. Magnolia. Very traditional Rolls Bentley colour scheme. So you've got magnolia with a darker exterior, royal blue. Unusual, it's got that light maple wood rather than the standard sort of Mm. deep honey walnut, which just gives it a slightly lighter interior. It's worth nothing, though. It drives fine. Drives beautifully. I've just come up the motorway here, 80 all the way, so it wouldn't be late. <laughs> Who is in the market for a car like that, Alec? The market has suddenly taken off, and the market's taken off for two reasons. One, they've become affordable, and I say affordable. That car is what ten to fifteen grand. Now, when you compare that with, say, a Volkswagen Golf, that's actually not a lot of money. Well, let's talk about you. You run us through the specification on that car, right? We're gonna go back to the '90s, so go back mentally to what was new on a car. Oh, I like the, the '90s. Yep. I was, I
0: was big in the '90s, <laughs> <laughs> as well. As, it wasn't just Bentleys that were big.
1: I, I was. Yeah, it was great. So I'm back in the '90s. Yeah, I like it there. Right. So it's got fuel injection. It's got ABS. Still quite new things then. It's got a Garrett turbocharger on it. So actually, it's a quick car. You're moving two and a half ton using an engine that was first used by Bentley in the 1950s. Internally, you've got memory on the seats, so if you get out and the chauffeur's driving, you can press a button, it'll put everything back for you. Uh, It's a gimmick, nobody ever uses it. Uh, Heated seats, electric seats, they're orthopedic, make them harder and softer. What's the stereo? Is it Nakamichi or Alpine? It is Alpine, Alpine, but Bentley... Rolls-Royce being as they were in those days, they never put anybody else's branding on. So the name Alpine is removed, but it is standard Alpine head unit with a CD multi-changer <laughs> in the boot. Avon <laughs> turbo speeds, of course. Yes, Does only it- ever used on the two cars. One, the Virage, which actually we mentioned last time, yeah, and Bentley Turbo.
0: So what sort of, that, that car, if you don't mind me pointing out, you only got this car yesterday and it, it, it's a car that you've, you've bought to sell on, but um, it's been well used, hasn't it? But it seems to have stood up really well to that use, despite what people might say about the crew products of
1: that era. That car, it's an old car now. Uh, that one, it's filthy dirty, but typical of a guy who'd owned it a titled guy actually who'd owned it for I think he's had it for about twelve years. So it's not had that sort of deep clean that new owners tend to do. It's been more owner who's got it and driven it. Well that's what title
0: people are like. If you go to their if you go to the homes and you go into the bits where they actually live, other than the bits where they charge punters to be, coach parties to be taken around on a Sunday afternoon and then sold a tea towel on the way out. If you go to where they live, it's always filthy dirty because they've always got loads of dogs. I went to, I had lunch with the Earl of Denbigh and there were literally dogs on the table. And he was mildly admonishing them. Come on, get down off the dining table. <laughs> a spaniel. I'm trying to eat this sandwich and there's a spaniel at eye level. And I'm thinking, should dogs really be on the table? I mean, you know, I'm quite bohemian myself. But properly pushed people don't mind a bit of dirt. and And, and especially... When you meet properly posh people, their clothes
1: are always full of holes. But it's the great British eccentric, isn't it? You know, the man who goes out and has to, say, gives and has a jacket made that costs him a good few hundred quid, he will get his use out of it. When he notices a hole in, the, in his socks, he's going to get it darned, isn't he? I mean, you've got a the man there who lived in a fabulous property who has just decided to buy a new Bentley, having had the other one for about 12 years. But he's not changing it all the time, even though he's financially able to, because why does he need to change it? He's got a Land Rover he's probably had since 1977. Does he need to change it? No, because he doesn't need to tell somebody he's wealthy. I
0: went to shoot on, I used to shoot, I don't know, I don't have an opinion either way. I see both sides of the argument as to whether people should or shouldn't do that. Uh, I I was going to say I choose not to do it anymore myself. Probably can't afford to do it any, <laughs> anymore when I used to do it. I think my income was uh, uh, quite a bit more than it is at the moment. But anyway, I used to shoot on this estate, huge estate up in North Yorkshire. And we used to get taken up to the really tricky bit in An ancient Range Rover with no glass in it, the bonnet held on with rope, and because of my interest in it, no headlights, just no glass at all in it, it it had hit every tree, wall, hillock in the surrounding area many, many times, but was still with full, I mean, the most off-road of off-road tyres you could imagine on it, get six people up onto some of the tougher stands to shoot. And uh, I said, what's the story with this? And the gamekeeper said, oh, his nibs bought it brand new. And uh, he said, and he drove it for about 10 years. He said, uh, then it was used round and about on the estate as a sort of uh, like a glorified van. He said, then I used it for a bit, a few years. He said, and uh, then when it couldn't pass an MOT any longer, even at the local garage, which was very understanding (laughs) (laughs) if a car came from the estate, you know, which a lot of the people in that village would have relied on. I don't think the tester was too rigorous in examining. He said, when even he couldn't pass it, we decided that it would be good for this, and it's still going strong. And I thought, yeah, that's the thing with, with properly posh people. But when this... they buy something like that, they don't do that ridiculous thing that regular people do, which is sell it when it's absolutely the worst possible time that you could get rid of it. When it's like maybe three, four years old, when it's the, the depreciation hit has been brutal... And they think, I'll sell it now. And you think, no, no, keep it another 10 years. Just pass it down. Don't sell it
1: now. That's insanity. But everybody's image conscious now. And I sat... uh, I'm not. Neither are you. We don't give a stuff. That's one of the best things... Why do you think I'm doing radio, not TV? Have you seen me? (laughs) (laughs) I'd have to sit on a cushion to see over the desk.
0: Well, that's one of the best things about finally getting to our... It's one of the few good things about being
1: middle-aged... You couldn't give us stuff what anybody else thinks. If you think about it, during the break in the lockdowns, I sat in a cafe with somebody you and I both know mutually who's also properly posh um, and has a stately home. And while we were having a conversation and a coffee, we were talking about this. And you watched all the Range Rovers, the Porsches, the Mercs. Everybody seems to have a Merc. They're like backsides now. Everybody's got a Merc. But you then saw an old Volvo estate. Mm. And I'm talking about the proper old square. This will drive into a wall and knock it down. Volvo estate, go past with a guy and a wax jacket on. A
0: 740 GL. That,
1: something like that, yeah. And I looked at Philip and Philip looked at me and then he said, he's the wealthiest man in that line of traffic. I went, yeah, I get that. Because everybody else, because of the image, because they want something new on the drive, pays the £50 a week, £200 a month, whatever it is, to have the latest car. That every two, three years, the finance company comes back and says, would you like a new one? Would you like the new model? You'll have the protection of the warranty. That's yeah, but that's what they do,
0: isn't it? They don't—they're not asking. What they're doing is they're getting their claws into you, because it's the only way the multi-trade can work. They get their claws into you. My brother's in that—in that boat. He—he—he he, he bought into one of these great-sounding deals with one of the major manufacturers about seven or eight years ago. He's kind of stuck with it. You know, it, it, it,
1: it's it, the getting in's quite easy to get it out of those deals. Well, the problem is, when you want to then go and buy a car for yourself properly, as in pay for it, you've got to suddenly raise a load of money because one car has rolled into the next car that's rolled into the next one. So you started off with your starter car as a kid. You saved a bit of money up. You bought another car. What was your starter car? Come on. My starter car. First car I bought was a 5 Series BM because... I didn't drink, and I'd made a bit of money, but I always had friends with me, so it was a big enough car. Um, which, so, which series was it? Was it the E thirty four, E twenty eight,
0: or are we uh, a Reg? So what, eighty three? So
1: that would uh, that would be E twenty eight. E twenty eight. Yeah, the shark, sorry. great looking car, shark nosed. Yep. Yeah, and I and I went from that to a three series wanted the 6 series and ended up with a 7 series right and, but exactly what you've just said you started off young with one particular brand and you sort of got hooked into the fact that because mm. you've gone from one model you wanted to go to the next model within that brand and went to that i also had a sports car at the same time such as like a spitfire and an x19 um, I've had a which, couple of those. I mean, they were fantastic. They dissolved occasionally, um, <laughs> but Un- underpowered. Underpowered, sports you can,
0: car. You could put the Uno turbo uh, engine. I, although I don't know, it's it's um, all these. The problem with motoring journalism back in the day. I don't know if motoring journalism exists uh, anymore, but back in the day, and I'm talking about like the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, is you had a lot of guys called Matt who had a Caterham Seven at home. And they'd go out on behalf of one of the motoring magazines or one of the daily newspapers. And they'd talk about pitch and yaw in their review of a new family car, five seater family car. And you'd think, "Uh, Matt. Sorry, your name is Matthew, but they always seem to be called Matt. And they always seem to have those quilted jackets that Germans were the first to wear. And uh, yeah, anyway, they didn't seem to realise that not many people are testing the performance characteristics of their five-seater family hatchback on the way to school, the supermarket, or work each day. They valued performance and handling above everything else.
1: But the world was a different place,
0: because... And that's why they were attracted to motoring journalism, because they wanted to drive fast cars. They then found themselves reviewing the new Nissan Almera but they would still treat it as... They would still criticise it for lacking driver involvement or, or, you know, feel on the brake pedal. They'd be talking about stuff like that, and I'm thinking, you do realise that the people that buy it are more interested in, has it got a decent stereo, and can I stop the kids from playing with the electric windows in the back? You know, that's... the There seemed to be a real lack of a connection between what motoring journalism was telling people about cars and what I thought people were actually wanting to know. When I got... And, and, and the thing was, because I was the bike guy on Top Gear... Right, let's let's do that. How long was it before I mentioned Top Gear? That's not bad. I've got over a quarter of an hour in before I mentioned...
1: Were mention, you on Top Gear?
0: I Yes, Alex. Really? I was I was on Top Gear for over ten years, uh, but... Um, it was a long time ago, and I prefer not to talk about it. But when I got a car, it was usually because it was it had been passed over by at least three or four of the other presenters, and so I'd get the Peridua Nipper. I reviewed the first Kia Sportage, which was a dreadful car. The new Kia Sportage is fantastic. I mean. When I say it's fantastic, it's not a car that you would buy, it's not a car that I would buy, or that most of the people who listen to this show would consider. Because we're enthusiasts, and it's not an enthusiast car. But for the market that it's aimed at, it is great. But it there offers-
1: isn't enthusiast cars anymore. Because if you think about it, when I was young, we just mentioned X19, Fiat, those MGs, the so Triumph spitfires and things, you all aspired to have certain cars. You went from bicycle... Often to motorbike. If not, you saved up and you got your first car. Yeah. Or you drove your mum's car. Now, if you had a sports car, you used to think you'd be cool, you'd get girls, etc., etc. Well, hold on. Yeah, that was pretty much it. It worked. (laughs) (laughs) But now, you talk to your average 17, 18-year-old. He doesn't want to get in his Kia and drive around because... If he wants to speak to his friends, he does this on his phone. He does this on, on video calls, Skype, etc. Skype? <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it's moved on a bit from Skype, but never mind. I might the other one, not uh, FaceTime. Skype. FaceTime. Or uh, no, whatever. No, uh, uh, What's the, What's the one that they keep TikTok, showing? Up? Snapchat. I don't yeah.
0: know. I don't know. I'm too busy watching a, a video of the, the Monte Carlo Rally with Paddy Hopkirk in black and white on on YouTube, or reading a big book about Louis Renault and uh, how many of the you know, as Jay Lenoir says, Germany was the birthplace of the car, but France was the nursery. You know, I I I go back. I the the modern motoring landscape. Doesn't interest me that much. And and that might seem bizarre. The show's called Steve's Speed Shop. You'd think that each week we'd be talking about the new McLaren, the latest Lamborghini, Ferrari, Aston Martin, the performance cars of today. They kind of leave me cold. They, they, I remember doing uh, a photo feature for a specialist magazine, not that kind of specialist magazine, a specialist motoring magazine, at Thought, which is... Uh, It's an old US airstrip. It's um, a two-mile strip in Leicestershire. Um, It was was designed, I would say, it was built so that B-52 bombers could land and take off, so it's two miles long. Makes it perfect for high-speed testing and stuff like that, and lots of magazines, lots of companies like Triumph Motorcycles used it for testing, and we used it all the time. And I was going there with a racing driver. I was passengering, he was driving. We were in the Ferrari 458. And he said, and I 'm not going to name him, they shouldn't let the general public have this. it's too fast, and we were flying, we were flying, man, and I just thought and and that's twelve years ago, ten, twelve years ago, the four five eight yeah, but you said when it the... was brand new, and it's and all these cars do is get faster, and it's the same with bikes, faster and faster and faster, the same to the general public. You want an 800-horsepower car. You want a 200-horsepower motorcycle. And I'm the person. I feel like I'm like one of those rock stars, like, you know, Eric Clapton or Pete Townsend or somebody like this who says, hey, kids, do you, you don't want to be on drugs because they're, like, really dangerous. <laughs> you know, and you think, well, um, you're. let me look on Forbes. You're worth $140 million. <laughs> you You did drugs for a long time and produced some amazing music which has given you that vast fortune. But... Let's not look but too going, much into that. I love fast... What I'm saying is, I love fast cars, I love fast bikes, but I wonder if this insane arms race, where, where 8, 7, eight, 900 horsepower is becoming the norm, and in bikes, you're nowhere, unless you've got 200 brake, 200 brake horsepower but let's in a flip, motorcycle.
1: Let's just flip back. You go back to the earlier days, early 1950s, C-type and D-type Jags yeah. were doing 180, 100, 190 miles an hour. The only thing that slowed On the, the Monson straight at the, thing, the, uh, the mall, well, yeah. Also being tested because yeah. you couldn't do it for a long period. The reason was the tyres. They were on the same type of tyre that you would be using oh. on a, a motor car driving <laughs> round. <laughs> and those tyres would explode. The tyre technology has moved to enable people to have very, very fast cars. The speed of the car has not increased that much in that period of time. When you spoke about Louis Renault, in 50 years, in fact, it's probably slightly less than 50 years from when he built his first car, you've got cars which are still doing the speed of motor production cars today. You've got supercars, yes. Those they've gone up to the 250 mile an hour, but they've not made that bigger leap. They've just become safer and more drivable. Mm. That's, that's the, the difference, in my mind anyway, because certainly when I've had old, old performance cars, and I'm talking about vintage, vintage Ferraris, vintage Bentleys, and things like that, they're very, very, very quick cars, but they ain't half bloody twitchy, because yeah. the tyres are hard, the grip isn't great, and if you give them a long, long period of stick, the tyres usually explode. Well,
0: you know the car that's my favourite car in the whole world, Sean's XK120. Sean's hugely yeah. modified. This is a mutual friend of ours who lives in the northwest. He has a hugely modified Jaguar XK120, but which retains for me that car. One of the reasons that car is so great because for me it blends out. It's everything that I that I wanting a car, and it's probably embarrassing because Sean's a huge fan of the show. He listens to... He he calls me to critique each episode (laughs) after it's been on. Oh, yeah, that was good. That guy was... You should have him on again, but, you know, better than last week. But anyway, I'm going to say, even though it's embarrassing, Sean, your car is my favourite car in the whole world. It has everything. It has the heritage of Jaguar. It has unbeatable looks. Um, It's an incredibly sexy car. The noise of it is is astonishing that the the whole sensation of driving that car holding that great big string wrap wheel and and the gear sh- everything the gear shift the way the brakes the way it turns in the view down that louvre bonnet with the leather strap it's just got the lot because it feels it's a very fast car that I, I, God knows
1: how much power that thing's putting out. I think
0: it's it's at least four hundred brake. But it's power. set
1: up by somebody who's had a history of motorbikes, a history of doing most of the rallies round mm. the round the world. Yeah. who's got a history who isn't a one trick pony. He yeah. hasn't well, just let's got say what a it vintage is, car. It's Rob Atkinson. Rob 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 is, is certainly, without doubt, the best person in this area to set up any of these. But cars. what Rob has done is he has enhanced. What that
0: car had when it came out of Browns Lane, he, all he's done is make it more XJ120. The perform, it, it's not been transformed by the work that's been done to it. You're just getting more of everything that Jaguar put into that car when it was the post-war sensation back in 1952, and it looks. It doesn't advertise its speed, its prodigious speed. It looks like an old car. It looks like a beautiful old car. But when you hit the loud pedal in that car, it comes alive in a way that no other car... And it's because I'm British. It's because I'm British. It's a Jaguar. Jaguar means a lot to me. My grandfather was a Jaguar man. We we dug out an old picture from the other day. And we, I had to put it there was you could only see a very small part of the car behind him and my mother and who else. And I knew that if I got the hive mind on the job with the sort of the people that have been on the show and the friends that you and I have straight away, people were coming back and saying, Oh yeah, that's a Mark Nine. And it was from it was from a tiny piece of the car they were saying, Yeah, yeah, that, that crease there behind the And that's the
1: difference between and you mentioned Rob. Rob has done some of the biggest rallying around the the world. Mm. I mean, he told me he changed the gearbox. I think it was eight minutes in a ditch. I mean, there's very few people who can do that. But you give somebody who's got that expertise a very good car and a well-built car Mm. and tell him to make it better, what you're going to get is special and it's going to be unique.
0: But there are so many people who will take a car and, I mean, it's very popular, isn't it, with... um, Singer. I was, I was thinking then. I was trying to think of the most famous enhancer, that's probably the best word, of classic cars. And the thought that popped into my head was sewing machines. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, because I was trying to remember who it was, because, uh, of course, there have been many people that have modified Porsche's road-going cars, but Singer are probably the the, the hippest, you know, in terms of if you're a young dude about town and you look around and you think, well, everybody's got a Porsche, how can I how can I stand out? You can go to Singer, and what they will do, and I think why they've been so successful, is they understand what made those early 911s desirable in the first place. What they offered wasn't being offered elsewhere. Other people, at the same time as those cars were being made, Alfa Romeo were offering you something that was different, Um British sports car manufacturers like Aston Martin were offering something that was very unique and very different. But Porsche were offering something which was unique. And what Singer do is they enhance each aspect of what the original car offered you in a way that's acceptable to a modern customer. If they went back, I was going to say, if they went back and drove the car as it was back in 1970 or whenever it was brand new 1973 whenever that Porsche 911 they I don't think they'd want to live with that car the way
1: it was it's very clever what those guys do you've got to remember a lot of the modern people who are buying these cars they are not people like you who got a long standing history with old cars and old motorbikes they're not drivers they want the look but they want the sat nav they want the heated seats they want to press a button and the glass vanishes electrically into the door and they want a gearbox that they can actually change gear in whereas you go to one of those early pre-g50 911s, you can't find the gears and when you can they're bloody hard to get in i've got an old 911 so i know these cars quite well mm. singer does something that means that people can drive them And so the journey to going to one of the events, whether that be Salon Mm Privé, St. James's Palace, Goodwood, one of those events is fun. And it goes back to that old adage that the shipping companies used in the 1930s, getting there is half the fun. Yeah. And people want to have that, it to go from being a form of transport to being a fun form of transport, but they don't. Unless they're proper, proper enthusiasts with mucky fingernails, who understand the mechanics, they don't want to have something that's hard to drive. Is there any benefit in in wanting a car that has a lot
0: of noise vibration and harshness and 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 really uh, can bite you hard if you if you don't get your throttle and your braking inputs precisely spot on? Is there not more to be had is there more? Is that car more rewarding than a car that's had all the rough edges chamfered off by by
1: technology? I bought a, a modern Rolls the other day, two years old. I was coming up the motorway in it, and I sort of forgot where I was because the seats are heated. It's blowing air into places that air should not be blown <laughs> into. You say that. But, <laughs> It slows the car down mm. when you get too close. It speeds the car up. It brakes for you. It tells you where the speed cameras are. It tells you everything. I don't act. I might as well have stopped at Keel Services, got in the back of the car, and fallen asleep mm. because it's that good. Where's the pleasure in that? Pose factor is off the scale. Yeah. Driving factor. It's so nice. It's like putting your hands in rabbit skin gloves. Hmm. and just letting them sit there. Well, like I say, Sean's XK
0: is is my favourite car on the planet. What's yours?
1: I've never even thought of it. Well, do think you know what about what, it now, Alec. <laughs> you know what, do you know something? Out of all the cars I've got at the moment, the one that everybody always makes a comment about is a little old Austin 7. Wow. It's got no performance. I mean, my lawnmower is more powerful, but it's got the cute factor. But that is the car that historically started so many other manufacturers. Opel, BMW... Jaguar. Jaguar. All started from the basis of a Mm. little British sports car. And it
0: led to Britain's dominance of circuit racing at the highest level. Yeah. Modified Austin 7s, the whole Garagistes, the Chapmans, the Coopers, all of those men, the Costins, all those those, uh, backstreet... Backyard geniuses who took on the best that Europe had to offer and kicked their ass. Oh, sorry, kicked their ass, I should say. We are British after all. <laughs> but, <laughs> and all through modifying
1: the humble Austin 7. But nobody can modify a modern car now. I mean, yes, you can go to Halfords and you, you can put a few stickers on it and you can put a funny exhaust on it, but you can't modify a car in the same way you could pull an Austin 7 to pieces. You've just got four wheels, a steering wheel and a... An engine and build a body around it. Well, uh, it was, it, I yes, but
0: I'll play devil's advocate. Which would you rather crash in a pagoda roof Mercedes from the 1960s or a modern Mercedes SL? You put a pagoda on its roof, you, you're probably dead. Those exquisite A pillars ain't going to hold up to being flipped onto the roof. Whereas in the modern car, there's every chance that
1: you just get out and go, oh, that was a bit scary. But there's a difference. You get your Pagoda Merc, brilliant car, very, oh. p- very pretty car, but you bump it. Not,
0: not great to drive, don't tell anybody. No, they
1: are slow, yeah. But you bump it and it's solid. Mm. You bo- bump your modern C-class Merc, every light comes on on the dashboard, it fires airbags out here, there and everywhere and the car's written off. Yeah airbags it's interesting isn't it it's
0: very hard to criticise uh, the industry for the rapid adoption of airbags appearing everywhere it's, I remember when cars had one airbag it was because I remember because the first car I wonder if you know which one it is uh, what was the first car that offered an airbag standard here in the u k and it was a specific it was a specific model. Uh, or, or specification of that car. It was one of bis- Britain's best-selling car. I was going to say it was a, uh, a Montego. It was the Cavalier SRI. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> which is the first car which gave a standard, because, of course, it was Delco who developed, I think, in it, well, the, everyone was developing airbags, but I think AC Delco in the States, as they were, were the first, or oh, my GM, were the first with airbags, and so debuted here in the UK on the Cavalier SRI, because my brother had a Cavalier SRi as a company car and of course it was huge it was almost it, there was almost, there was hardly room for you to get your hands around the wheel because there was this walloping great big airbag and then of course they started appearing all over in the in the sides of the seats and in the in the B pillar and in the in the in the subvisor the sun visor and all that sort of stuff and I thought yes this is great this is saving lives but as you've just said in a relatively low speed collision they're all popping off, and that's writing off the car because the cost of replacing all these airbags is more than the car's worth. And so, guess what? They get to sell you another one. And if people don't think that the industry doesn't lock the door sometimes when they're just on their own and say, "Okay, what else can we? Uh, what else can we put on these cars that makes them that makes them easy to get rid of? Dual mass flywheels, catalytic converters, airbags, all things that have been heralded as a great step forward." In the design of passenger cars, and it's hard to argue, you know, that they weren't. But all things that, when the car reached a certain time in its life, were guaranteed to fail, and guaranteed to send that car straight to the scrapyard.
1: But the problem is, cars. There's very few cars. You mentioned the Ferrari, Porsche, but there's there's that are going to always retain a following, even a twenty-year-old boxer still has a following now. Good car. But, fantastic car. But you Best well, entry
0: level Porsche ever. Better than a nine one four. Better than a 924, brilliant, be, brilliant. Be, nine two four. Brilliant. Bet nine nine one two, better than all those. The best entry level Porsche ever. The original Porsche Boxster. And if you can find a first year one, silver with a red interior, buy it. If it's in good neck, buy it and tuck it away because they will in it, people aren't ready to be nostalgic for them, but in another give it another 10 15 years, and people who remember staring at them in the street wishing they could have one will be in a position to give you
1: decent money for it. Do so you mean hairdressers?
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a hairdresser's car. Hairdressers bought McGann coupes. Oh, and that Volvo. What was, what was that Volvo coupe? This C70. C- C70, C70, but, I think it was. But
1: if you think about it, you mentioned the Kia before. The Kia has become a disposable car,
0: it always it, was. It, it always was. Kia, I think the great... Because um, I've i been at this game long enough to remember how poor those original Kia... The Kia Pride, the, the original Sportage, was a shocking car. It's it, I mean, for its time, compared to the, the likes of, say, a Voxo Frontera or a, a Land Rover Freelander, which is probably what it would have been uh, aimed against, and they probably would have said, we're undercutting it on price, that's what we're selling on. You couldn't you couldn't drive one in all honesty and say that it was anything like the package that Vauxhall or Land Rover were offering you in a similar sized car. But now, in in a relatively short period of time, the Korean manufacturers, Hyundai Kia, I believe they're connected, I don't know, is it essentially the same company or not? I've done quite a bit of reading on that, I tend to fall asleep Uh, once I get into the detail on stuff like that. Um, The cars that, the equal of anything that's made in Germany or, or France or, or Britain or the
1: States. I've got to say... Or better. Or I, better. I, I have driven as a higher car, a Kia, brilliant car,
0: but... Look at that Stinger! What a great car! One went past me the other day. I, another guest on this show was singing the praises of that car. he just had one on test. And I said, I don't know if I've really noticed it. And he said, when you, wait till you see one.
1: I was driving along, one went past me on the motorway. I thought, what's
0: that? What is the... what?"
1: Oh, it's Kia. Wow. But, oh, look but at think, it. When the Hyundai wow. made made that coupe, it was a very pretty little coupe they made. looked a bit like a 550 Maranello Ferrari at the front. Do you yeah. remember the one? It yeah. was a great-looking car, but you go and stand, and I'm afraid to say red-blooded men still have the sort of pecking order of cars. So you go and stand in your local bar, pub, call it what you wish. You've got a Land Rover. Well, that... that That's acceptable. Mm. You've got a Porsche. Yeah, that's Mm. great. I might have criticised the boxer. But still, you know, it is a Porsche. That's acceptable. And then you turn to the man who's got the best-looking car in the car park, which is the Hyundai Coupe, and everybody knows it was made by a man who ate a dog for breakfast. Why is
0: it that people who buy specialist cars are so difficult to deal with? Most car sales are conducted in a showroom, obviously, uh, with a car salesman in a business-like environment. But as soon as you move into the world of specialist cars, it all starts to get very weird very quickly. I've just tried to sell a 36-year-old Citroën CX, and
1: the only people that are interested in buying it are weirdos. Yeah, but I'm afraid to say you're into the territory... That people aspire to buy something, so they've spent the last four or five years researching. Now, Google's a fantastic tool, except people then forget that half of it's written by people who've never owned or understand the cars. So they'll only say about the horror story when they bought a Ford Escort and their Escort was awful, etc., etc. Now, you go back and mark my words, I will do a show with you in five years' time where people will be paying 50 grand for RS turbos and XR3Is because suddenly they will hit, as they're just beginning to, and I know nothing much about Fords, it's not my area, the age of people who aspire to own one. Mm. And you're dealing with aspiration, not need. So the man who goes in, and we'll go back to our Kia thing, and buys his Kia... He needs a car so He's there's no ego transport
0: there's no ego involved it's a basic you're fulfilling a basic need it's almost like when people buy a car like that it's almost like when they take out a contract with a utility supplier like the water company or the the gas company or whatever it's the same sort of thing you're
1: satisfying a requirement a requirement for transport whereas somebody who's buying a specialist car now if that's your man who's wanting his catering to the man who wants his Rolls, is Ferrari, call it what you wish. He is satisfying a desire, an aspiration. He's aspired to own one of those cars.
0: And we're saying he, but it generally is a man, isn't it?
1: I've dealt with some women who have probably known more about cars than I have. Yeah. And I think it is still very much a masculine area. But the female area is growing. And that's growing because there's a whole new group of people who want to dress up, they want to go to these events, whether that be Goodwood or Salon Prevail, one of these events, where it's not just men
0: and cars. And you've got to credit Goodwood, haven't you, the organisation there and, it, and his grace, the Duke of Richmond, with um, bringing... This is going to sound totally patronising, but it's true. They've made motor racing, historic motor racing, interesting for women. They've not just had it as a sausage fest. From the start, both the Festival of Speed and the Goodwood Revival, and I think events like uh, Sion Park have learnt from them. If you add female interest, like the whole dressing up thing at Goodwood, I mean, I love it, mate. I can't get enough of that. But so does my missus. She's all over it as well. And so it just makes the event, the atmosphere of the event, is better. Because it's not just a load of hairy-arse blokes, which is what it almost always has been in the past at
1: motor racing. But you look at the old Pathé news footage and things like that. It was families. It's always families, but it's always about a male driver. And it's always very masculine, dominated... The narrator is masculine, it's always about a male driver, but we, Bob f- Danvers we- Walker, usually, or Alvar Liddell. Welcome to the Geld Cap here at Oulton Park in Cheshire.
0: When did people stop talking like that? Well, I think we should all go back to talking like that. I'm going to talk like that from now on. Good day, welcome to Steve's Speech Shop. <laughs> it was almost like everyone had a paralyzed bottom lip, <laughs> that are just completely immovable. But yeah, I, but here's the thing there was a shift. Um, and I'm trying to work out what it was. And I think it was, I think it was in the 70s because I was talking to a guy who I was talking about the TT, the Alamann TT. And he was saying, Oh, yeah, we always used to go across to the TT races. And I said, Oh, I didn't realise that you were interested in motorbikes. And he said, No, no. He said, uh, I said, Did your dad have a motorbike? No, no, no. Dad never had a motorbike. I said, And you, you briefly had a motorbike. He had a scooter, he had a Vespa uh, just to get to work. And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, how come you went to the TT? And he said, it was entertainment. Yeah. And I was like, oh, right, yeah. There was a time when motor racing was something that people went to who had a peripheral interest. It wasn't their obsession. It wasn't the way it is now. They went to the Isle of Man and they chose to go on TT week because there was this extra free show that was was on, which was something to do. Look at the crowds at, at motor racing just after the war when it started. Tens of thousands of people turned up to every single race but, because finally, after all those years, uh, you know, of struggle, uh, and people had some entertainment. And so they were quite happy to take their sandwiches wrapped in greaseproof paper and a, a flask of uh, hot sweet tea and sit on a hill just for the chance of seeing a few racing cars go past every few minutes.
1: But you look, the entertainment we've got now is enormous. I can watch football, horse racing, Mm. motorbike racing, car racing. The opportunities are endless. Mm. You go back to those days, you had one radio station, television hadn't really come out. Your options for entertainment were to go to the local cinema and sit and watch whatever the local film was and people did people yeah. went people
0: people don't realize my I was talking to my parents about this and my mother was saying oh yeah we'd probably go to the cinema three or four times a week three or four times a week Because television was, you know, it couldn't compare. I mean, in many ways, that was the golden age of cinema, wasn't it? You know, the sort of Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, Marilyn Monroe, you know, people like that. It was golden. Whatever the BBC were able to offer at the time wasn't on a par with going to the cinema and seeing, you know, uh, the stars
1: of the silver screen. People went all the time. The surge in television ownership was a lot of people bought televisions for the coronation. They wanted to watch the coronation. Yeah. In the same way, we've just had a pandemic. Lots and lots of people are suddenly realising they can work from home and they're operating in a different way. Um, I mentioned uh, Skype. It was Zoom. Every, a lot of people right. are doing meetings on Zoom, yeah. aren't they? Now, this was inevitable. Skype was like the prototype Zoom. Yeah, but this was inevitable. And all that's happened is we've speeded the process up by about 10 years. Right. And the same thing... The coronation came along. It speeded the process up of people buying televisions and a lot of people renting televisions. Mm. They were massively expensive things to oh, own. Oh, yeah. Now, they give you a free TV, pretty much, when you go and check your groceries out at Tesco's because they're cheap now. I've got a TV that when it was... I just bought it off
0: uh, a popular internet auction site and the guy started at 99 pence and it's a bag that all of television... And when it was new, about eight or nine years ago, it was £13,500. And I bought it. I I put a bid on, and the auction ended at £22. (laughs) £22. And the thing is, compared to a TV that you buy now, it's no great shakes. I mean, I think the screen resolution is something like 1080. It hasn't got HDMI. It hasn't got a HDMI socket on the back. I've had to buy one of those converters, which obviously won't put a proper signal into it. But do you know what, Alec? Like? When it's not switched on, it looks amazing. But that's... Whereas, and, and here's the thing. For the vast majority of the time in my house, it's not switched on. So every time I walk past it or I come into the room, I think, wow, that looks amazing. Whereas... If I had the latest seven k, I think seven k is the latest, isn't it? Again, there's well, it's the same as with cars. There's a TV arms race. It was like four k. Oh, hold on a minute. Hold on, seven k. It's like we're ten k
1: next. Yeah, but hang on. Let's put this back into perspective. You've just spent twenty odd pounds on the TV that cost thirteen. That was thirteen thousand pounds. pounds. I've just arrived here in a thirteen thousand pound Bentley that cost? that new. Cost about one hundred and fifty-five thousand pounds. Oh, Yet one hundred and fifty-five thousand pounds. But move the clock forward, the comparable Bentley to that today. Three hundred thousand. It's just over three hundred thousand oh! so pounds. It's almost, <laughs> double, it's almost <laughs> double the price. We were wafted along in it, and I just thought the
0: smell and the view down the bonnet and the flying bee on the front and the the whole look. I was, I was looking at the. the the stitching, and you told me a great story about the stitching on the, you've got to tell me that story about the stitching on the steering wheel
1: When the Germans took over this is Volkswagen Audi group Bentley they sorted the factory out a lot of people were quite worried because us British were very 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 suspicious of anything foreign well, uh, unless you're driving a Kia uh, and watching TV on a Bang & Olufsen German television. Yeah, but well, that, it's we're, actually we're, we're very suspicious of
0: anything that's yeah. foreign. The thing about that Bang & that's interesting as well is I did a bit of reading on it. It turns out that the Bang & is just wind-dressing, like the Mercedes pickup that my friend is driving, which is actually, I think, a Nissan with a Renault engine. The working oily bits, so to speak, of that Bang & Olufsen television are actually Panasonic. so it's just you know you you never know for the badge on something well you do if you go back because when that bentley that you've turned up in today was made that was made by bentley that wasn't made by volkswagen
1: yeah but you can pull it apart you can pull it apart so the headlights are the same headlights are in that e20 whatever five series bmw right the brakes, a Ford Cortina or Transit van. They're not. Really? The, really? The gearbox up On a up turbo until, R? Yep. Uh, except with twin callipers at the front. The air conditioning unit, the gearbox of General Motors. ZF for the power steering unit, same one as Jaguar, Aston, etc. used. Uh, Bosch KJ-Tronic fuel injection. But then you put the package together. Hmm. And you package that in such a way... It makes you feel special. Mm-hmm. It takes you back to when you're lying on that massage table and that nice, attractive lady gives you a massage <laughs> with baby oil. It takes you to that nice, <laughs> nice, happy You're a terrible place. man! <laughs> but the Germans come into Bentley and they look round at this ageing car manufacturer. It, was this still the, when they had the hole in the roof? The hole in the roof and they still had two... Which the Germans put there... It, 40-odd years previously. Well, they actually had two plaques in the factory to the workers that were killed in a bombing raid. Oof, that's, and, a bit, that's a bit awkward when you knew German owners turn up, isn't it? <laughs> well, the, in fairness to the Germans, they replaced them, they restored them and put them back. And also, that factory was Mr Merrill's potato farm. It was never built to build cars. It was built because it was close by the radio, uh, railway, and they wanted to build Merlin, Merlin engines, engines yeah. and they could transport them on the railway. And so the, the potato farm was taken over with this factory. Even though it was Rolls-Royce, the first car to leave Crewe was actually a Mark 6 Bentley. Right. Anyway, going back, when the Germans took over, they've spent a huge amount of money. They updated it. There was a lot of suspicion. few people saying, oh, not too happy about the Germans taking over such an iconic British brand. They were using an engine that they were still using from the 1950s. So everything was quite dated. One of the things the Germans did with all their auditors and their very, very clever people, they went round each of the departments. So when they were in the trim department, they said to the ladies there, we are, we are not going to allow you to eat your food here anymore. We are going to build you an area to eat your food, a station where you eat your food. Mm-hmm. The lady said, well, it's all right, we don't eat our food here. We have a station, we go and eat our food. Well, why do you all have these dinner forks, this cutlery? Ah, right, right, right. That's because the four prongs of the fork are the exact right markings for where we mark the leather out to stitch the steering wheels. So the Germans looked at this and said, no, 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 we will have a device. So they spent quite a lot of time, lot of money, and the biggest brains... Remember the T. man years ago, the big brains. <laughs> I do. In, in, in Germany, March drowned, and they said, actually, the dinner fork is the best idea.
0: Isn't that the same story modified about the US space program, who spent two years and millions of dollars designing a pen that would write in orbit, in space, and the Russians used a pencil? Isn't that, isn't that the same I dealt story? With a man.
1: I dealt with a man who'd walked on the moon once. Really? Did you sell a car? I did. It was an American guy. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. He's not one of the well-known ones.
0: I mean, you wouldn't remember it
1: if you'd dealt with somebody who'd walked on the was, moon. Come I, on, Alec, I, I remember was, his name. Which was, one was it? It was either Charles or Chris. I, I think it was Charles something. Anyway, I mean, we're going back probably 15, 20 years ago. I asked him a question and I said, you've walked on the moon. This is... Very very few people, but actually more people than you imagine that walked on the moon. I said, I've got to ask you a question. I said, What struck you about walking on the moon? Right. And he said, The smell. The smell. So we've well, got a spacesuit, you've got oxygen coming in. He said, Yes. But you forget something. When you unzip that spacesuit in the little chamber, he said it's got all the dust on it. Right. Off the surface of the moon. So you have the odour. What What does does the moon smell like? Exactly what I asked him. Right, yeah, go on. He says it smells like a rusty bucket. (laughs) Now, the odd character that I am, I did go round looking for rusty buckets to try and work out what the smell was. I'm wondering where you're going with this. Um, (laughs) What he meant is, if you think of an old galvanised bucket... Yeah. An old galvanised bucket has that sort of odour. Now, I've got to say I've never really smelt a bucket... Of old metal, bit of tin, bit of zinc from the galvanising, etc. That sort of metallic type smell. And that, of course, is the smell he was making reference to.
0: And that's the smell that all of us who've ever restored a Lancia or a Jaguar, I'm trying to think of cars that are notorious for rusting, but all cars rust. Don't you mean
1: fiberglasses? Isn't that the smell?
0: All cars rusted. It's, it's a great... People say, oh, yeah, Italian cars, all cars. I, I restored a, a Mercedes S-Class, 1974
1: Mercedes. It has rusted as bad as any Lancia. I, I have bought aluminium cars, and people say aluminium doesn't rust, and that rusts and rots. Um, and people are, are very much, steel, it's going to rot. But aluminium won't, won't rot fiberglass it won't rot they forget there's a chassis there that rots quite merrily away you go to an Aston Martin they put an aluminum body on a steel chassis and of course you get that reaction between the two materials which causes the metal the, the steel to rust like buggery i
0: quite i quite get the whole patina thing but i also see that there's a difference between a car that has patina and a car that's been neglected. Yeah, I no. mean, some people, some people will try and con you on that a neglected car has patina. But I've owned, because I bought them from somebody else who really looked after them, or because I tend not to, I'm terrible, because I, I fall in love with cars, buy them, and then move them on quickly because i've got a hankering for something else i'm always looking for the next driving experience so the cars tend to go through at a fairly rapid rate and i'm not big on maintenance because i I like to drive i like to drive them i like to use them i like to understand what they are what they're what they're about i know the reason you've come in that turbo R today is because you like to know about the cars that you're selling and the only way to know about them is to use them
1: not just to go around the block you need to you need to drive the damn Every thing. Every car I have, properly. I've usually driven about 150 mile, 200 mile. The reason is, if you clean a car yourself, you know more about that car if you've cleaned it yourself than if you get somebody else to do it, plus the fact it's good exercise. But if you've driven a car, by the time you've done 50 miles in that car, you know if it's a good car or not. Because the oil, the water, everything's up to temperature. You've had... The fuel clean off if the car's going to be moved around on choke, so it's cleaned out all the cylinders. It's, if it's carburetor, it's cleaned out the carb. And you actually get a feel for the car. You notice that that little squeak isn't just a little bit of something sticking, it's actually a buggered bush. You're not allowed to say buggered anymore, are you? Um, you just did. Right. But you actually get to learn about the car. And that's why I use the cars I've got. Um, that's why I never buy anything at auction, that's why I don't use transporters. Right. I have great days out on trains, because I'll sit on a train, and I will go to collect a car. I'll spend a couple of hours doing some work, whatever, on the train, and then you drive the car back. And you still have that fun, you still have that feeling. Of, is it going to get me home? Is it going to get you home? Or
0: am I going to end up on a smart motorway with Eddie Stobart's finest bearing down on me at speed with my hazard warning lights growing ever dimmer <laughs> as I stand there in the rain begging the breakdown truck to come and rescue me? Or do you do you stay away from... Presumably when you drive in a, a car of some age back, you stay away from motorways no I've
1: I've I've driven up motorways I've gone sideways across the M5 M6 junction when a vintage Bentley tyre decided to blow out (laughs) Um, and considering that the car had just been heavily restored nobody and it's a it's a terrible thing that we have in this country nobody ever checks the age of tyres An M.O.T. man at... They looks look at t- the tyre,
0: and they look at the tread. They don't look at the numbers on the side that tell you how old that tyre is. Well,
1: the, the tyres on that vehicle, which I didn't know at the time, but had only just collected it, even though the car had done very little distance... Yeah, and they, so they looked OK. And the car had been heavily restored, and, of course, it had been to lots of shows where it had had all this tyre dressing put on it, etc., so it looked lovely and shiny. The tyres were actually from 1989. So suddenly, having driven up from Essex in that car, uh, two and a half tonne of car, in the wet... On 30-year-old uh, tyres. On 30-year-old tyres, the tread decided to delaminate. And in, a, in, a, in a, it was a couple of years ago, but it was this time be in November, suddenly I realised I was six, 6 o'clock in the evening, going sideways past the M5, M6 junction and the RAC building with no hard shoulder because nobody ever looked at the tires and said hang on we've changed the rubber belts we've changed the brake pads we've changed the spark plugs these tires are over quarter of a century old they need throwing out people get used to looking at
0: things to tell them as to whether whether they be sort of brake discs or brake pads or shock absorbers if they you know if you look at a shock absorber and it's not leaking and it's not stained because you realize that the seals have gone in it and stuff like that If it looks okay, it usually is okay. But like you're saying, tyres can look great because they've had very little use. But because of their age, they can't handle... It's not necessarily the performance and the torque. It's the weight
1: of that car. That's a a two-and-a-half-ton car. And that's where the problem is. In Germany, the reason we have these companies in the UK that sell secondhand tyres is in Germany, the tyre regulations are enormously strict. That's why in Germany you've got things like the autobahns, which are de-restricted speed-wise. Yeah. But... People are very conscious about tyres. They also have a system that people put winter tyres on. So people are often changing the tyres. Yeah, but
0: we don't get winter, do we? Look, it's, it's, it's one of the last days in November. Look at the sunlight coming in through the window. It's about 15 degrees out there. It's almost December. We don't really have winter anymore in this country. Right, before you go, and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to get you on, because I need some advice, and I'm sure there are lots of people out there that would... Love to hear your take on this briefly. Because I'm trying to sell a car, it's a specialist car, and it's a bit of a nightmare. You have sold hundreds, if not thousands, of specialist cars. And as I've said, it's different selling a specialist car because you're dealing with want rather than need, and that's an entirely different setup. You're dealing with people's ego. You're dealing with people projecting themselves into that car, imagining themselves driving that car. And they imagine that car to be the way that they want it to be rather than the way it actually is. How do you sell a specialist car or a collector car?
1: What's the secret? You don't sell them. The car sells itself. The man has already decided he's going to buy that car. So unlike the man who walks into the showroom to buy whatever as a modern car, he is going in on what his budget will allow and he needs transport. Whereas this is what somebody's budget will allow, but he wants to fulfill an aspiration. Now, photographs can be massively deceiving. I, you know this story, but I'll, I'll repeat it. A couple of years ago, I was looking for a particular Aston Martin for a customer. Now, I'm not a particular Aston specialist, but coming around on various auction sites and places looking to fulfil this requirement, I came across a car that seemed a lot cheaper than it should be. So the first thing that goes through your mind, this is a fraud. Now, one of the easiest ways to tell a fraud is look at the background. Don't look at the car, look at the background. So we're in November now. If the trees in the background have got full leaf on, that photograph was not taken recently. Right. If... The telegraph poles look like they're foreign. That means that that car was photographed n- not in the UK. Yeah, because we... it's more we, likely
0: to be a fraud. Yeah, we sent, tend to send power underground in this country, so exactly. you don't have those power lines that would indicate that the, the,
1: the photograph was taken abroad. Palm tree in the background. <laughs> yeah, palm to me, tree. If the car's not in Turkey it's probably photographed somewhere else and it doesn't exist. Heard of wildebeest. Yeah. Yeah, probably not taken in Finchley. So you you sort of, and you look at things such as the bricks and mm. the type of thing. So mm. I've always had that in my mind. So I took the risk and I spoke to the chap. I said, may I have your telephone number, please? And this is a dark blue DB6 Aston Martin. Some beautiful photographs in cream, very much bath stone type house nice oak tree taken on a lawn of this car man who's selling it is from just outside bristol so the right area for the stone right time of year you're like you're it. like inspector morris you are you're not a car salesman you're a detective but, but you have to sort of have a look round the thing so i ring and this chap answers the phone and i said hello i'm you give me your telephone number about uh, an Aston Martin. Oh, Aston Martin, bloody marvellous! Spoke like your man off, um, <laughs> o- o- off the Bob, sort of Bob Danvers Walker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need to speak to my son. He's just out in the garage. He's playing with his new V twelve Ferrari. So it's all fitting to the jigsaw. The jigsaw's together doing nicely. it. Long story. I agree to buy this car. So banker's draft in my pocket. Off I go down to Bristol.
0: Some people might find it surprising that you agreed
1: to buy it without actually seeing it. Well, that's why I go a banker's draft. Right. And in, you can see how long ago it is. Banker's draft, now everything's done on transfer, isn't it? Hmm. So you're going, you've got your banker's draft in your pocket, and it's three and a half t- hours on a really hot Sunday on a train. I get to Bristol, and I'd said to him, how will I recognise you at the station? Because he said he'd pick me up from the station. He said, I'll be in a red Ferrari. And I walked out of the front of Bristol Temple Mead station, which is a station built well. built and designed by Isambard Kingdom oh, Brunel. A, a grand old Fantastic station. Building. Fantastic building. But I'm hot. There's been no aircon on the train. There's been no catering. I'm thirsty. And I saw this Ferrari and I thought, I sold that car five years ago for scrap. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a very distinctive number plate that started off war something something W. Um, I won't say the digits, because somebody who's probably still owns that car now. And it had been standing around outside for about 15 years, and wow. it was rotten. It was scrap, Ooh. and I'd sold it for scrap. This car is now painted up bright red. It had been silver. Outside, that, and two scaffold poles, or looked like scaffold poles as an exhaust, 400 Ferrari. If you remember the 400, it was the oh, Pinaferina, yeah. big such a coupe. Much unloved, four-seater mm-hmm. job. That's it. So Quite I guess, a handsome car. I guess Well not this one maybe. Actually no, they were a handsome car, and you can see the Pininfarina line done in Camargue, Lancia Gama, the Fiat one thirty. Yeah. They were all very much from the same stable at the same period. Yeah. Get in this car and this chap he he was a very unusual guy. Um, he, he sort of reminded me slightly of Dennis Nielsen, the serial killer. <laughs> Except he had one eye looking at you and one <laughs> eye looking for you. <laughs> and he drove along with one eye sort of looking at me whilst the other one was watching the road. That's handy. Because, you know, he, yeah. you know no, he, he
0: could engage you in
1: conversation whilst properly taking account of the traffic. With with this sort of an inane grin. And we arrived, having gone out of suburbia to... Maggie let you buy your own council house suburbia, where they'd pebble dashed everything and then got a four-foot plastic butterfly and screwed it to the wall. (laughs) And he bumped this car up on the curb. And I'm thinking, that's odd. This Aston Martin was photographed outside a really nice Bathstone Georgian house, and this looks like a 1960s council semi. Okay. Okay. Get out, and I'm stood there. Front door opens of the of the he's getting out of the car and I've just walked up the driveway and front door opens with a man who's got a regimental blazer on yeah. the dirtiest white shirt I've ever seen, ah. wiping his nose on a cravat that was round his thing, <laughs> his fly is p- par- par- partially open. Who went? Good afternoon, squire. Come about the Aston Martin, bloody marvellous. James Bond had one, you know. Anyway, just about to do pims. Would you like to join us at pims on the lawn before you look at the car? I said, no, I'm terribly sorry. But How I'm- big was the lawn? The size of a table tennis table? I don't know, like because they, they, they put hardcore over the front and I couldn't see to the back of the house. So I, I sort of declined his offer politely and stood by the garage door and at the corner of my eye, the serial killer, I could see it was dragging the world's scruffiest tarpaulin off a car that was on the driveway. And you thought, surely that's not the Aston Martin that I've come to so, buy. So, it can't be. He says to me, he, says to, he said, don't you want to look at the car? I said, yes, this is in the Aston, in the garage. He said, no, it, it's here. I went, no, 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 the car I have come to look at is the dark blue one in the photographs. Oh, photographs are what it look like when you've restored it. Here it is, with a Flick of the arm, the last bit of the tarpaulin, and this is the world's worst. I have never seen... There's a word to describe it, which I'm not allowed to use on radio, but sounds like ducked. Car. The bumpers have rotted through. It's aluminium, it's a DB6. This is a very iconic car. Yeah. Done some Maybe re- not this one though. I've done some research on the car. It had originally been owned by Bernie Winters. Um,
0: that's he keeps so it getting mentioned. A, it,
1: you know, it had a, a very interesting sort of history it, to he it. He was the guy who was in a double act with a dog. That's him. still with the dog. <laughs> so I sort of looked at this thing, and and now I'm f- slowly but surely filling with a mixture of rage and confusion. So to make to make it clear, you've been
0: supplied with photographs of a n other car, he, right? Which they were saying
1: was how this car would look if you restored it. Bingo. They had stolen some photographs off a website or wherever and got them. So this was not the car. And I opened the door. There's fungus growing out of the carpets. The seats are knackered. I opened the boot and I realised that I was looking at my shoes. So I'm thinking, shall I save the situation? Because, one, it is now half past four or five o'clock on a Sunday and I'm in Bristol and no way of getting home, probably. So I said, uh, does it run? I'm thinking, you know, there might be something we can do here. <laughs> At which point he says, have you bought a battery and some pecky and this swivel-eyed lunatic dribbling? <laughs> I said, does it look like I bought a battery, a battery and some petrol? <laughs> At which point Father reopens the front door... Right? Still in regimental blades. Had you got the, yeah? the pins? No, no. Um, he had a. I bet a you could plate. have done with a drink. Oh, I could and have drink. And you don't even drink. You don't even drink, but. Uh, and he had a plate, and he said. Just doing the cucumber sandwiches, do you fancy crusts on or off? And I said, listen, thank you very much, but not for me. I prefer the crusts off. With a pair of yellow-handled scissors, he starts snipping off the crusts, <laughs> which are falling on the floor. Yeah, people are going to think you're making this up. Well, I...
0: But it sounds... Ah, it sounds there's, too an, end. there's too, an end to
1: this. There's too improbable to be made. There's an end to this. Firstly, he got told exactly what I thought of him, not very politely, and our serial killer... Got told um, what I thought of him and where he could stick his Aston Martin, and if it didn't fit, bit by bit. But um, well, I... hold on a second, because a guy like you
0: will always do a deal. So even though you didn't buy it at that, the agreed price, because obviously it wasn't the car in the pictures, did
1: you actually end up buying that car? No. It, this, it, this is there what certain... happened to it. I I don't know, and I've actually. Remembered the number plate and looked a few times. I i got to the point where I was stuck in Bristol. I walked, it took me over two hours because I got lost to get back to Templemead station. No taxis on a Sunday. And I ended up going and finding a taxi by the station. And I said, Take me to where the road is with all the Indian restaurants. Ah, you want food. I take you to my friend. He does food. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want food. Could, but I want just the road. No, I take you, my friend, He look, I don't want to go to your friend. I just want, <laughs> but in those days, outside, there was always a road in every city that Yeah, had a few Indian, course. Chinese restaurants. Yeah, in they Birmingham, all, it's, yeah, and in Manchester, Rushome, the Curry Mile. Yeah, yeah. but they always have a car for sale outside. Right. And I'd missed the last train home, and I was not sleeping on Bristol Temple Mead Station for the night. Despite its magnificent Despite its magnificent. So £400 and uh, a large quantity of poppadoms later, and I had a Nissan Micra, (laughs) which I drove for six months. And back to what you said about some of these foreign, cheap Japanese Korean cars, it never did anything wrong. No. The only strange thing is I went to go and collect a car in Bristol, a Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow. And you went... Did you set the mic? Did you this go is, in the micro? No, no, no. I swapped the mic. The, the, the micro was swapped um, with a chap for a car, and that, that's another story. But this is a couple of years later. I went with my elderly father, who, by this stage, he, he's dead now, but he was well into his 80s. And on the train on the way down, we're laughing about the story with the Aston Martin... And I said, I've just got a funny feeling this is going to be the same guy. Oh, and no. he, said, he said, he won't deal with you after what you said to him. I said, no, no, no. I said, but I, I'm not sure. I said, just got this feeling. And I walked off the stage. But I said, bring the car to the station. Let's have a look at it. And I walked up. And the old man was slow in those days. He was well into his late 80s. I walked up out of the doors of Temple Meads. And there is the most perfect, and I mean perfect, Silver Shadow, owned by... Um, a chap who'd been the neighbour of um, that TV presenter who was murdered um, Western, Dando. Jill Dando, Western Supermare and these people had got it somehow, I don't know or they were selling it for them and it was a perfect car and I looked and I thought suddenly, I realised it was him suddenly out of the corner of my eye Dirty regimental blazer. (laughs) Kavat! (laughs) Hello, Squire! How are you? Haven't we met before? Never forget a face. So it was no hard feelings? I don't know if they realised it was me or not, but, you know. (laughs) That's
0: it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.